fantastic to see so many people out here tonight. Um, my name is Joshua Watson. I am an artist and educator, and I have been uh, here at St. Matthew's for the better part of a decade. Um, as an Anglican church, um, we think incarnationally. In his book on divine images, St. John of Damascus says, we do not adore creation in place of the creator, but we worship the one who became a creature. And since it is through matter that God has worked out our salvation, there's an appropriate honor due to material things. We're here because we believe that we have a stake in the material world, and therefore we see that art can be a good in and of itself. Here at St. Matthew's for the last few years, a lot of people have started to have these conversations. Um, we really value our tradition here, um, and a lot of people have been kind of bemoaning the fact that um, the church has kind of abdicated itself from the culture at large. Um, so I thought it was time to start to engage with the arts, um, start, start to have these conversations, um, and start to think about these questions um, before we start to do anything more. Um, I think uh, it was Bishop a few weeks back in a sermon that said, um, don't just do something, sit there. Um, so we're here tonight to sit here, start asking questions. Um, and if we're going to talk about art, I think it's great to start with modern art. Um, something a lot of Christians are kind of scared of or curious about, don't really know what to do with. Um, so we're going to start there tonight, but we hope that tonight will be the first in what we hope will be an ongoing series over any period of time where we start to ask deeper questions. Um, and if we're going to talk about modern art, I could think of no one better than Jonathan Anderson. Uh, Jonathan Anderson is an artist, critic, 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 and an associate professor at Biola University, where he serves as director for the Center for Christianity, Culture, and the Arts. He has recently co-authored a book for, the, for which this event is named, Modern Art in the Life of a Culture. Jonathan Anderson is a regular contributor to numerous books and articles as well. While John will be temporarily leaving us this fall to pursue a PhD at King's College in London, many of his lectures can be found online at Open Biola, and I would highly recommend you all search those out. Uh, incidentally, uh, John has also joined the ranks of Instagram, uh, where he aims to educate... <laughs> That's a big deal, actually. <laughs> um, uh, this is where he actually aims to educate users on various modern artists in a distilled format. And I actually have found it to be one of the better uses for the platform. You should really check that out. <laughs> Lastly, I have known John for almost a decade now. As a student, he was an inspiration and a mentor. After graduation, he has continued to speak into my work and has become a good friend. I know I'm not the only student who has appreciated his guidance and his sacrifice. Um, John's passion for art, education, and culture is a natural outflowing for his love of God and neighbor, and it is a privilege to have him here before he departs. Please welcome me, enjoy welcoming John Anderson. All right, you can hear me okay? 
Uh, so it's, uh, it's so good to be here. Joshua, thank you for having me and for everyone else who uh, uh, put on this event, uh, hosted me. I, I really appreciate it. It's very kind. Very good to be here. Um, so uh, uh, so I'm, I'm an, originally trained as an artist, um, but, but I worked my way into being an artist as someone who's just thoroughly interdisciplinary. I mean, art for me is uh, this project, this human project of setting aside objects, surfaces, occurrences, spaces, whatever you, whatever you will, I think any medium is suitable for art. Uh, the setting aside and bringing into view of these objects for the, purposes, for the purpose of reflecting on the lives we're living. Uh, the meaning of human life in relation to each other, the meaning of uh, um, the meanings uh, of forms and colors, the meanings of, of the lives we're living um, in, in all of its dimensions. I mean, that's, that's the thing, that uh, human life is extraordinarily dense with meaning. Uh, so that we can think about the arts. I mean, I, I, think, I think this project of setting aside objects for reflecting on the lives we're living um, has, a, have, has a bearing on, on almost every other discipline, the disciplines of, of uh, psychology and sociology and ecology and on and on and on. And, and for me, one of those dimensions that has always been very important is, the, is theology. I, I just have always, um, I think, experienced the arts as, on some level, speaking to the meaning of human life, the meaning of uh, the world, in relation to the presence or absence of God. And I think that is fundamentally a, the theological question. What is this in relation to the presence or absence of God? Um, and so I think I had, I had always, uh, been um, very interested in the theological implications of art from all time periods, and particularly modern and contemporary art. Uh, the last couple hundred years, 150 years, or however you want to see modernism. Um, but when you turn to the histories of that art, um, theology and religion dropped out of the conversation really uh, uh, distinctly. <laughs> it's, it's just gone. In fact, in, uh, when it does appear, it often appears as precisely the thing that modern art is not about. Uh, that, that the whole point of modernism was to separate the arts from the church and to uh, separate the arts and, and critical reflection on the arts uh, from the disciplines of theology. That was exactly the wrong question to be asking, or set of questions. And that's, that is pretty common in the ways that the histories, the written histories, and the teaching of modern and contemporary art is uh, presented. And I, I, it, I don't think it's true. <laughs> I think our histories are partially miswritten in, uh, on that count. Um, and that has really projected me into writing. So I, I've, I've been forsaking my studio for the last few years in, uh, in pursuit of, the, of this uh, question of the, the place, the role of religion and theology in 
our understandings of modern and contemporary art. Um, uh, with uh, having, uh, having fully in view the fact that what modern art is, indisputably, is art after it left the church, right? Uh, and so in, so in a lot of ways, this is a really interesting place to be having a conversation about modern art in a church. I kind of like, I kind of love, uh, in fact, uh, doing this talk here. Okay, so I, I, I think was, uh, felt very much projected into these questions that I didn't know how to answer, uh, searching for books that I couldn't find, <laughs> that it didn't seem anyone had written. And so I really just felt pulled into, into uh, writing. And uh, one of the uh, kind of most prominent examples of that is this book, uh, Modern Art and the Life of a Culture, that I co-authored with a theologian named Bill Dernis, who teaches at Fuller Seminary, if you guys know uh, who Bill is. So well, what I want to do tonight is uh, introduce this book to you, talk through it a bit, uh, outline its major concerns, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and introduce a, a couple of snapshots uh, that are taken from the book, and then leave some time for questions at the end. So hopefully a good bit of Q&A, 30 minutes or so. So as we go through this, uh, feel free to be formulating questions, and we can, we can bat them around here uh, 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 at, the, at the end. Okay, so uh, launching into the book, um, this is uh, uh, this book is meant to because of because of the project that it's taking up, namely religion broadly, theology more specifically, and modern art. Uh, it we wanted to write it in a way that it functions persuasively in at least two different contexts, very different contexts. On the one hand, it needs to function in the spheres of art criticism and history. We want this to account for uh, uh, um, histories. It's a retelling of the histories in some ex to some extent. Uh, so on the one hand, that, that context of art history, uh, criticism, theory, um, uh, on that uh, hand, we're talking, uh, and we're talking with people who think or, or who are mostly confused about what religion and theology have to do with modern art. Uh, to take one example, this is a book by James Elkins uh, from a, a few years back called On the Strange Place of Religion in Contemporary Art. And Elkins, who I like very much, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy and I, I respect what he's doing um, in this book. Uh, for Elkins, he's interested. The whole premise of his book is that it seems as though contemporary art doesn't have any kind of functional discourse for thinking about theology or religion. He says this early on in the book, contemporary art, I think, is as far from organized religion as Western art has ever been, and that may be its most singular achievement or its cardinal failure, depending on your point of view. The separation has become entrenched, and he means that not prescriptively, but descriptively. He's trying to describe his experience as a very prominent art historian at the Art Institute of Chicago, his experience in the, in the writing and teaching of uh, contemporary art and, and contemporary art history. So he means it descriptively rather than prescriptively. Um, and 
uh, he sorts through, the book is devoted to sorting through why this is the case and can it be altered, adjusted. He's very interested in creating more space for thinking about religion in contemporary art because he sees it in, a, in the concerns of his students and in the concerns of a lot of artists who are written about, but then once you get to the teaching and the writing, it disappears and is just not uh, acceptable. And so he goes through this kind of train of thought, trying to figure out, uh, you know, what, how do we speak about religion? And he concludes his book saying, there is no way to bring religion and contemporary art together. Uh, if when they meet, one will always crush the other. But we have to keep trying. That's how he concludes his book. Uh, so uh, I'm uh, one of the fools who's continuing to try. Um, and there are all sorts of places we could go in the histories to kind of uh, understand why this is the case. Why is contemporary art uh, so uh, detached from um, uh, religion? Um, and there are all places, all sorts of places we could go. One of the places that Elkins goes is to uh, a very prominent theorist named Rosalind Krauss who writes in several places, but here in a, a very uh, prominent uh, art history and criticism journal called October that uh, Krauss helped to found. And in one of these essays uh, from fairly early on, late 70s, she says this, in the increasingly desacralized space of the 19th century, art had become the refuge for religious emotion. It became, as it has remained, a secular form of belief. This condition could be discussed openly in the uh, late 19th century, but it's something that is inadmissible in the 20th. So, by, so that by now we find it indescribably embarrassing to mention art and spirit in the same sentence. I love that. <laughs> uh, and I think it does, uh, once again, describe, describe the, um, some, um, some of the, the state of the art, the general art discourse devoted to modern and contemporary art. So why? What is this divorce, this rift all about? Krauss refers to it as a rift earlier in that, um, in that uh, essay, an absolute rift between the sacred and the secular. What is it? Uh, in real brief terms, without going into it too far, uh, Elkins uh, says this, Art that sets out to convey spiritual values goes against the grain of the history of modernism. To suddenly put modern art back with religion or spirituality is to give up the history and purposes of a certain understanding of modernism. In other words, there is a grain of the way that the discourse moves in modernism and what modernism is for and the critical methods and um, mechanics that make modernism go and the way we interpret uh, artworks after modernism that is automatically, to, in, in some way, exclusive of religion and theological reflection. And once again, Elkins is trying to describe his experience rather than prescribe it. Um, but for him, uh, he's identifying this grain of the history of modernism. So, uh, uh, we, I, am interested in rethinking that grain. 
I think the grain uh, it, um, has left some things out and has started telling a story that actually detaches from the artwork and the artists that it's describing very often. Okay, so that's on the one hand, and we can get back to that if, if we need to. So, so on, uh, the, on the other hand, our book is trying to speak into this context and offer a modestly revisionist art history, an account, a modestly revisionist account of modernism that actually features religion and theology fairly prominently. On the other hand, our book also has to function in the context of Christian, past Christian reflection on modern art and other Christians who have tried to think through these same issues. Namely, uh, and maybe most prominently, beginning with a, an art historian named Hans Ruckmacher, who in 1970 published a book called Modern Art and the Death of a Culture. Uh, so the title of our book is meant as a direct uh, response to Ruckmacher. And Ruckmacher's, um, Ruckmacher was very influential. How many of you have read Ruckmacher out of curiosity? Yeah, right? So Ruckmacher uh, came on, into this conversation really when nobody was talking about theology and modern art. Like just not, not very many people, a handful of people. Um, and he showed up uh, talking about, as a, as a very devout Christian, reformed Christian, um, talking about modernism and arguing it is a theological project. It has theological implications to it. Uh, humans are spiritual beings, they are theological beings, and the art they make is theological at some level. And it needs to be interpreted as such. But then his reading of modernism was one, and if, if you've read this book, it's one that is pretty sour on the theological implications of modernism. And, and you kind of get that, even though they think the title is referring to something maybe a little different, the death of um, the death of enlightenment culture, I think is the death he's talking about. Uh, but you kind of get the sense, I mean to title your book that, you kind of get the sense of the, the attitude <laughs> that he has in this book. Um, it, it's, it's one that tells a pretty gloomy story of art, uh, modern art being a worthy and worthwhile rebellion against enlightenment rational, rationality, rationalism, but because it had no recourse to belief, uh, religious belief, it kind of unwinds into a downward spiral into nihilism. And so the rebellion has, uh, has uh, the rebellion of modern art has no god to fall back on, and so it collapses into nihilism progressively. It's a declinist narrative. Um, uh, and you get some, just to pull out a, a quote or two from Bookmacher so you get uh, a flavor for it. Uh, he says earlier in the book, early in the book, the issues at stake are not just cultural and intellectual, but spiritual. What's involved is a whole way of thinking that leaves out of account and so largely negates vital aspects of our humanity and our understanding of reality. And there you get kind of his two main critiques of modernism, um, that he, he believes it is fundamentally dehumanizing and disorienting. It's, it leaves 
leaves out of account vital aspects of our humanity and our understanding of reality. And one of the reasons he believes this is that he has a very pictorial theory of art, right? Art is for him a picturing of the world. And so when modernism starts to <coughs> fracture and break apart representation, he very much interprets that as a fracturing and breaking apart of the thing that's being pictured. Dehumanizing. To break apart an image of a person is to dehumanize that person. Uh, to break apart your vision of the world is to disorient you. Um, I don't think that uh, is very very good art theory for interpreting modernism, but it was the one he had, and uh, he, he ran with it. Um, and the story uh, that he tells, and it is a story, it's, I mean, it's a driving narrative that starts sweeping up all sorts of artworks as examples, never really uh, discusses any artwork for more than a sentence or two, uh, sometimes, sometimes uh, three or four. Um, but it is just this, this story, decline of story that's barreling along, just sweeping up all of these artworks. Making claims, big claims like this, uh, that one thing that binds all of these modernist groups and arts together is the assertion that reality is at stake, that it has become a question mark, that it seems to be something man cannot, humans, humanity, cannot be happy with, something that is strange to him. Crisis, alienation, absurdity, it's words like these which describe the artistic situation. And those are the words he uses over and over in the book. Uh, he uses the uh, word absurd dozens of times. Um, and ultimately, what Rookmacher was trying to do, I think, or what he did, uh, was tell a very gloomy story of modernism at the same time that he was very much encouraging Christian artists to, to get their acts together and go make art. Stop apologizing. <laughs> you need to make art, right? So you kind of have this, this call to action among Christian artists that is in some ex great extent funded by a sort of crisis story that you have to respond to, right? Kind of um, a very 20th century strategy. <laughs> okay. Um, sorry, I hope that was okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, so you can see that this is a pretty conflicted project we're trying to pull off. Uh, I mean, these worlds are both talking about the same things, I suppose, modern art, but through really different uh, frameworks. Uh, and we're trying to write a book that functions uh, in, in both. It's a fool's errand, but I, I'm foolish enough to do it. Um, uh, so, on the one hand, we're affirming with Rookmacher, uh, religion and theology is a really important uh, framework for understanding modern art, and it has to be accounted for to do good art history. Um, but we're objecting to the ways that he did the art history. And on the other hand, we're, uh, I think, affirming much about modern and contemporary art history, the way that those histories are written and taught, but also arguing, man, we're, we're leaving out a whole dimension of human thinking and human valuing and reasoning that is important for uh, really um, doing good art history, uh, fully accounting for the meanings that these artists were wrestling with. Okay, so that's kind of framework, maybe a little front-loaded, <laughs> too front-loaded. 
Um, and this is part one of the book, right? Uh, it goes in two parts. And so the first part is really articulating these, uh, how, how, um, how this project sits in these two contexts and making some key cr critiques, I think, of each of these uh, projects. And it's pretty, it's, it's pretty good writing. I mean, you should check out, <laughs> chapter one is really good. Um, uh, one other thing to put on the table from part one is that at the center of this project is, if we take uh, Elkins um, uh, at his word, at, at, the, at the center of this project is the question of modernity. What does modernity mean? What is the grain of modernism? It's a central question that is, uh, is often begged, I think, in, um, in these kinds of projects. Um, so we're, we're thinking about modernity, and we've had a lot of help with that. Over the past uh, two decades, there's been a lot of work about modernity and modernism that's very helpful. Uh, and a lot of that is arguing that there have been these narratives of secularization, uh, what's called secularization theory, or secularization thesis, that argues that when a when a society modernizes, it intrinsically secularizes, right? And that narrative um, has come under a lot of pressure in the last couple decades. Uh, on a sociological front, it just doesn't seem to be describing what has actually happened in the world. Religion is more of an issue <laughs> in the world now than it perhaps uh, uh, has ever been. Um, and, and religion seems to be, and religious belief seems to be spreading and multiplying rather than declining, uh, particularly in countries that are in the process of modernizing. So it's got sociological problems. On the other hand, it's got big philosophical problems that a, a number of philosophers um, are arguing, including Charles Taylor, that these uh, theories, the secularization theories that dominated a lot of critical theory in, in the mid-20th century were built on some faulty assumptions and were, were um, uh, creating a narrative that was exp explaining, um, uh, uh, explaining things that it didn't have the, it, it shouldn't have been uh, explaining, I guess we can say. So we turn to uh, Charles Taylor, uh, in, uh, also in chapter one, uh, to help uh, call into question this grain of the history of modernism that uh, Elkins is talking about and others. Because after all, modern art history was built with a secularization theory at its heart, right? That old narrative of what is modernism? Modernism is It had, a, it, and Rosalind Krauss uh, nearly admits this. Secularization theory is at the heart of the kind of art history that she was doing. And it's a questionable theory. And so if we call into question secularization theory, we're also calling into question, at least to some extent, the histories of modernism that were written on it and around it, by it. Uh, so we pull from uh, Charles Taylor and Taylor very, very helpfully, I won't go into much Taylor here, because uh, if, if, if any of you have seen this book, it's like a, 
it's a, it's a whopper. Um, uh, but I'll just pull from one, one aspect of uh, Taylor. He very helpfully um, distinguishes between three meanings of secularity. Um, first, he describes secularity, and he labels, he numbers these secularity one, secularity two, three. Uh, he says one meaning of secularity is that uh, we're referring to a privatization of religious belief and practice. In other words, this is the splitting between the public sphere and the private sphere. Uh, religion goes private, uh, and the public square has to be secularized and pluralistic. And we refer to that as secularization. There is, that is a secularizing. Second, a second meaning of secularity uh, that he points to is the diminishment or rejection of religious belief and practice. And when we say the word secular and secularization theory, we're often referring to that, uh, the decline of religion. Um, but that's clearly different than secularity one. And when we use the word secular, sometimes these things all get wound up together. Thirdly, however, he identifies a third meaning of secularity that refers not to the privatization or the rejection of belief, but to what he calls the fragilization of belief and practice, religious belief and practice. Um, this, he says, is actually the deeper meaning of secularity. Uh, and the other two are certainly um, important and they're significant to understanding modernity, but the modern age isn't one that intrinsically rejects or privatizes religion, it's one that fragilizes religion. And this is a, an effect of um, uh, a lot of things, technology, globalization, and so forth, in which uh, he says we can no longer hold our beliefs as taken for granted. You can't just grow up in the town that you grew up in, believe your beliefs, and that's the way the world is, axiomatically, as he says. Rather, we can only hold our beliefs today while looking over our shoulders at all of the other options. And he says that is a fragilizing process. And what, what this fragilizing kind of secularity does is not reduce or collapse, collapse or eliminate belief. Rather, it, um, it pluralizes belief. So he, he, he refers to not a collapse of belief, but a supernova in which you have all sorts of beliefs uh, and practices on, on, on options. And they get combined and remixed and so forth. And you have, you have this fragilizing that also goes along with the pluralizing. This is really key for our project because uh, what we're arguing, what has typically been argued when it comes to modern 20th century art history, we'll say, what uh, typically has been argued is that it is a secular two project. It involves the elimination, rejection, the walking away, the denial of God. Um, our argument is that modern art is profoundly secular. It is, but it is secular three. It is the, uh, the best way to understand religion in modern art is as a fragilizing. And so what you get is not artists who are rebelling against God as much as you are 
artists who are struggling with what they can believe, what is to be believed. How does one proceed when you're working outside of the church? How does one proceed in the modern metropolis? What is a human life? It's one of struggle and inner conflict and theological conflict, not of theological rejection and diminishment. Um, and and that's, that means that modern art, I think, isn't uh, what the purpose of this book, our book, is not to try to just you know, make a case for modern art that can just be simply and uncritically imported back into the church. Um, uh, it's, that's not the argument we're making. This isn't art for the church. This is art well outside of the church, but uh, it's art that has a great deal of theological questioning and concerns, human concerns, in it that can be named and sorted out, and doing so is, uh, is uh, uh, I think, productive and generative, <laughs> certainly for the art history conversation, but I think also for those of us who take religion theology seriously. Okay, is that all right, sort of? Well, there are lots of questions there, but uh, we'll, that at least gives you kind of the theoretical framing of this book, which is part one. Uh, so I want to run through a bit of what we do in part two, which is where we then turn to the histories themselves and the artists themselves and try to uh, sort out and uh, um, give voice to uh, and modestly retell uh, aspects of modern art history that um, where we see this, I think, secular three wrestling with, wrestling with belief. Um, so uh, Rookmacher took as his period, time period, 1800 to 1970, when the book was published. So we decided, you know, uh, we decided to uh, take that same time period and more or less take the same kind of geographical areas that he covered. Uh, not because that is the best place to do a, a history of modern art. I think this book would actually be really exciting if it uh, took into account more of the global south, more, more kind of non-canonical artists. But we decided, let's take this same kind of history that has been so become so familiar and been um, uh, so written about and see if we can rethink that history. Start there, start with the kind of canon and move outward from there. <clears throat> so we start with 1800. Um, I'm going to, uh, my co-author and I kind of split the chapters, so we didn't so much co-write as <laughs> wrote our chapters. So I'm mostly going to ignore the chapters that he wrote uh, uh, just because I'm standing here and, uh, you know, I'll talk about what I uh, was thinking about in this book. Um, and this is actually the, the, the chapter, or part two, goes through geographical regions. So it starts with a chapter on France, and then Northern uh, Europe, uh, Russia, North America, and so on. Uh, so this is actually from his uh, chapter on France, but I sort of dropped a few things into it. Um, so we looked at, we looked at uh, um, examples. In, uh, one of the reasons that we did that, went geographically, is that we could take regions that were predominantly Catholic or predominantly Protestant, 
predominantly orthodox and start thinking about the ways that those religious contexts were shaping the kinds of questions and uh, resources that the artists were exploring. Um, so we look at Gauguin and Van Gogh, um, both of whom were in earlier times in their life preparing for the ministry. Uh, Gauguin trained as a priest, trained to be a priest, and Van Gogh trained to be a pastor. Um, both of them left those uh, trainings deeply conflicted and disoriented and, and turned toward painting. But that doesn't mean that the project was any less theological than, than what they trained for. I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the kind of theological struggle went into the painting, and a lot of the painting is about it. We pull out this example of Gauguin and Van Gogh being in a, a directly in a theological disagreement here. Um, uh, the painting on the left was first painted by Paul Gauguin uh, that describes a vision after the sermon or a vision of the sermon in which you have these devout people from Breton who uh, he, was, he was up there kind of uh, working among them and he witnessed some, some kind of vision that they had and he makes this painting as a kind of skeptical outsider. What do I make of these people who are having religious visions of Jacob wrestling the angel? And in some ways, maybe the painting is a kind of surrogate, the wrestling with the angel, wrestling with this whole idea. And he constructs the painting with this curving apple tree. He, he identifies it as an apple tree um, that uh, separates the space into a foreground of those who are having the vision and a background of the, of the of the, the vision, the spiritual vision. Van Gogh sees this painting and responds with his own. He quotes that tree, that curving tree, uh, that separates the foreground from the background, the left from the right, the, the here from the there. Um, but he reverses the terms. He chooses the sower uh, from the parable of the sower, which is really the parable of the soils, after all, right? It's not about the, it's not about the sower. It's about the state of one's heart and 